Amen, everyone. And uh, it's been, um, wow, uh, quite a time. Uh, quite a time today, quite a time in our, our city this week. And uh, I'm feeling a bit emotional right now, so I hope that's okay. Uh, feeling a bit pumped up for what uh, the Holy Spirit, I think, is trying to say to us today off the back of this week. And, and uh, for the excitement that I have for the Word today, we're, we're continuing our series on dreaming again. And I want to literally just jump straight into Scripture because uh, I'm carrying a burden today about justice and particularly about the realities of injustice in our world and God's burden that he has for dreaming for his justice. And I, I'm, I'm just sensing in my spirit today a up, kind of uprising of his desire for justice, for the dreams of God's heart, for the gospel in our city like never before. So I want to I wanna jump into this passage. We're going to open up the Word of God to Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to start reading in a moment from verse 11. And I pray that as we unpack this passage today, this will be a word in season for you in what God is doing in your life in this area of dreaming again. So let me read this to us. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him this, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ, the Messiah? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. Famous passage of scripture, a famous story, an important pivotal moment in Jesus's life. This is, of course, the story of Jesus's trial, the moment where he's just uh, like hours away from being sent towards his execution. This is the story that Matthew provides for us to understand what he's about to write in the rest of chapter 27. And just a few paragraphs ahead, he's going to tell us the story of the death of Jesus, the suffering that comes upon Jesus's He's on the cross. And then in chapter 28, the wonder and the beauty that is found in the resurrection. And Matthew frames for us the story of Jesus' death and his resurrection by providing us details about his trial. That's the thing that, that leads up to the story of his death, what Pilate, as the governor of Jerusalem, does in this moment. And, and Matthew is providing for us this idea of Jesus' trial and framing that for us so that we we can understand something that is significant about Jesus that will help us to understand the power that is found in his death and resurrection. There's nothing in Matthew's gospel that is a waste. And this story right here is the gateway through which he wants us to walk into understanding why Jesus had to die and what it is that Jesus does in the beauty of his resurrection. Now, Matthew's presentation of the trial of Jesus is pretty similar to the other presentations that are found in the other Gospels, except for one significant difference. Matthew, and only Matthew, provides one quick little short side story 
a side story that isn't found in any of the other Gospels and a side story that sets up everything Matthew wants you to know about Jesus before he goes to the cross. And that little side story is just a 34-word passage that follows immediately after what I had just written. Let me read this to you from Matthew 27, verse 19. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Ah, yes, a dream. And this dream found at the end of Matthew's gospel is one of the most unique dreams that we have in the whole of Scripture. It's unique for two primary reasons. First of all, this is the only dream in all of Scripture we have recorded to us that was given to a woman. It is also the only dream we have in Scripture that is described to us as a nightmare. And this is fascinating for us because Matthew is the gospel writer who brings dreams into the story of Jesus. In fact, dreaming provides the bookends around Matthew's presentation of the gospel. Pastor Ellison came to us a few weeks ago and told us about the dreams that God had given the Magi and Joseph right at the birth of Jesus. Those dreams were designed to protect Jesus from those that were planning to kill him. In that case, the Roman Empire. And now right here at the end of Jesus' life, God gives another dream, this time to a Gentile woman. And that dream also is designed to protect Jesus from the people that are trying to kill him. And this time, it's his own people. Pilate's wife gets this dream and this nightmare so shakes her. It so turns her upside down that she wakes up early in the morning and she gets a message written and she sends this message to her husband and she says, whatever you do, don't have anything to do with this man. In other words, you need to deal with this straight away because she says these words, he's innocent. And if you do something to him when he's innocent, then an injustice is going to come. And she pleads on her husband to make the decision not to send him to his death, not to send him to a crucifixion, but actually to let him go. And history shows us that Pilate, like many other married men in history, ignores his wife's advice. And in ignoring his wife's advice, he brings into history perhaps the turning point of all history. He actually ends up releasing Jesus to the crowds so that he could be crucified. And I could stop preaching and just preach on that one point right now. In fact, if all the married men could stand up right now. No, just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But the reality is Pilate ignores what his wife pleads to him. And the rest, as they say, is history. And here's what's crazy to me in this whole story. God gives Pilate's wife a nightmare that declares to her that Jesus is innocent when actually God knew that Jesus still had to go to the cross. In other words, the dream wasn't going to have any impact whatsoever on the outcome. In fact, God gives a dream which ironically is against everything that God is about to do in Jesus' death and resurrection. I wonder if you've ever thought of that. Why does God give Pilate's wife this dream when this dream is going to have no impact whatsoever on the outcome of what's going to happen for Jesus? And the answer to that question, my friends, the answer to that question, 
question, I think, has everything to say to us about why it is that we need to dream again here in Hong Kong in 2022. And I want to open up that idea to you as we unpack this passage of Scripture together today. At the most pivotal moment of Jesus' life, God gives this Gentile woman a disturbing dream. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us the content of Pilate's wife's dream. We don't understand exactly what she saw, how she saw it. All we know from the Scriptures here is that she understood the message of what that dream was. We get the message rather than the content. And the message was this. In fact, in the Greek, she describes it this way. She describes Jesus as a just man. In the Greek, that just man means that he is innocent or righteous. The word itself, and this is a really important thing, church, the word itself carried with it themes of justice. So God gives Pilate's wife a dream, a nightmare in the middle of the night to understand the injustice that was about to happen to Jesus Christ. She, in this dream, and again, we don't know the content, but we know that she was so shaken by this dream, so deeply disturbed by the injustice that was going to happen to an innocent man, that that injustice birthed within her a burden that she had to share, a burden that she had to declare, no no matter what the outcome might be. She knew that it would be up to Pilate, her husband, to make a decision. But this dream so disrupted something in her that she had to declare the innocence of Jesus into the situation itself. Now, Matthew says something right here at the start of this passage that I think is so important. He says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat. He uses this phrase, the judge's seat. Now, this phrase has two meanings to it. The first meaning is the one we take literally from the passage here. As governor of Jerusalem, Pilate sat regularly on the judge's seat of the court. He would be the one that would judge ultimately whether somebody was guilty or not. And therefore, Pilate had in his hands the power of life and death over pretty much anyone in Jerusalem. If they were brought to trial, he would sit in that judge's seat and he would make a judgment over whether they were guilty or not, over whether they should be punished or not, and ultimately over whether they should live or not. And here's the irony of this passage. This Greek phrase, the judge's seat, is actually the phrase that's used from this point onwards to speak about Jesus's position in heaven after the resurrection. That Jesus has been raised from the dead and sat at the right-hand side of the Father, the judge's seat over all of creation. And Matthew's trying to point out the, the fantastic irony that sat on this one simple passage, that over the judge seat, Pilate was sitting to an innocent man, Jesus, and he's about to condemn an innocent man to his death. And the irony is, in the future, Jesus will sit on the ultimate judge's seat and will actually end up judging Pilate for what he's about to do. Now, we don't know for sure, but a lot of scholars think that this might have been what it is that Pilate's wife wrestled with in that dream, that she might have come to understand that this innocent man, Jesus, was going to be the judge over all things, and that Pilate's actions in this moment were, were going to actually have major consequences to one who would sit eventually in the judgment over all creation. And she was so disturbed by that, that she found herself having to speak out. She says these words out of 
this dream. She says, have nothing to do with this just man, this man of justice, this man of innocence, this righteous one. Have nothing to do with him. Don't do what you're about to do. In other words, she's saying, do not judge the one who has the ultimate power to judge you. Do not stand in that one's way. This message that she's proclaiming of Jesus' innocence is so important here. You may not understand this, but it's so interesting to me that Pilate's wife is the only person in all the Gospels who actually declares Jesus' innocence before the crucifixion. There are many people post the crucifixion that point back to Jesus' innocence, but she's the only one recorded to us in all Scripture who declares that innocence prior to the crucifixion. Now, when you understand that she's a Gentile woman declaring this to the court at the time, this will blow you away. You see, a woman in those days, her testimony had no legal ramifications at all in the Roman Empire. A woman's testimony had no legal impact in any trial at all. God takes the very vessel that could have no legal input into the trial of Jesus to declare his innocence. And we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? Well, here's what he's doing. God is doing what his character has done throughout all of human history. He takes his counter-cultural message and he places it within a counter-cultural vessel. Come on, church, this is really important for some of you to grasp a hold of this. Jesus so often uses the nameless for his glory. So often he steps in and he uses the ones who, who think they're nothing, the ones that have no, if you will, legal ramifications, the ones that don't think they have any power, any authority. Pilate's wife had no authority at all over the trial that Jesus was in, but she didn't care that she lacked authority. She knew that the message that she carried, had all the authority that it needed. And she was willing to proclaim that message even at the great cost of her own self. And this is so important for some of you listening to this right now. Some of you watching this right now, you feel nameless yourself. You feel like you're weak. You feel like you, you don't have anything to offer. You feel like nobody really knows you or, or that you've got nothing to really do for the kingdom. You, you feel like you're insignificant, small, and irrelevant. I want you to know this, that God throughout history has always used those people that feel like they are irrelevant to bring his message of power and glory almost all the time. And, and this is really important because when I think about the vine as a church, here's the truth of it. The glory of the vine is not going to come through the one or two individuals who are articulate and stand before cameras and preach God's word. The glory of God at the vine is going to come through those that feel like they're lost in the crowd, the nameless ones, the ones who are scattered throughout the beauty of our congregation, people just like you who feel like perhaps you don't have a great thing to say. You don't have a platform for your voice. And yet God is going to so rock you with his dreams that you are going to be the one, like Pilate's wife, to be able to declare things that no one else can declare. God wants to use you. And here's the great thing about that. 
Pilate's wife is used in this moment, even though what she says doesn't impact what's actually going to happen. And when we ask ourselves, why is God still giving her this message? Here's the reason. Because Matthew wants us to know one thing about the death and resurrection of Jesus, that the whole gospel is formed on the beauty that he was innocent. The one thing we need to know about Jesus, even though it doesn't impact the outcome, is that he was actually innocent. The whole of our gospel is founded on that point. Our gospel is nothing less than the declaration to an evil and broken world that there is one who was willing to stand in the gap on our behalf, that there is one who was willing to take the judgment of sin and death on his shoulders so we might be free. That, my friends, is what the gospel is all about. It's about a, 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 a blameless lamb that was sacrificed on our behalf, one who wasn't guilty, one who didn't have uh, all of the, the sin and the brokenness that we have. Our gospel, if it's anything, is the beautiful reality that Jesus was innocent. And here's Pilate's wife declaring that innocence and God bringing that to her in a disturbing dream because he's saying this is what justice is all about. See, see there's this dream given to her that's so brutal breaks her for the injustice that's about to happen, that that injustice burns a burden in her to say that he is innocent, even though that might not have any impact whatsoever to what might happen in his life. And I think justice so often must be like this. I, I think when we think about the work of social justice, when we think about the justice of the gospel, we so often think about it in end terms, like what it will achieve at the end. And we work for justice, don't we? Because we want to change the laws. We want to shift things for the vulnerable and broken in our society. We want to see transformation come at this systemic level. And that's so often why we speak out in justice. And I love the the fact that God has given us this story because it shows us something about justice that we so often don't actually see. That while of course the end game is so often important, sometimes the declaration of the gospel is worth it even if it's not going to shake the outcome. That sometimes it's worth us standing in the gap, even though perhaps the law doesn't get changed, even perhaps even though um, the, the plight for those that suffer in our city might not shift. It's still worth it to declare before a broken world the truth of God. You see, the importance of the gospel of justice, of justice gospel, is essentially the idea that we get to declare God's truth before the lies of this world, that we are able to speak forth the, the declaration of God's narrative to the injustices around us, that we get the great ability to actually send a message of God's revelation to the pilots of our time. And that in doing that, even if the outcome isn't what we would hope, there's still value in the declaration itself. I think this is so critical for us because I, I think what Matthew is trying to say to the church is this. Are we willing to stand up for our convictions about Jesus even when it feels like those convictions are not heard, seen, or acted on? Are we willing to hold the dreams of God in our heart even when it feels like those dreams will not have an impact in the brokenness 
that is around us. If we learn anything from this passage, here's what we learn. We must continue to declare a Jesus who is innocent to a world that so often still cries, crucify him. That's part of our call. That's part of the gift of God that's upon us. And I want you to know this, that kind of dreaming is costly. That sort of dreaming always comes at a cost. It it certainly came at a cost for Pilate's wife. Let me read you how she describes this. She says, For I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of this innocent man. I have suffered so much in a dream because of him. I I think this is so important. So often I think that we think that, that dreaming again is supposed to be easy and a lovely safe road, that it'll be a wonderful experience, that it'll be a joy in the journey. Here's what we need to understand, that so often the dreams that God gives us, the dreams are not always dreams that are going to bless us. Sometimes God gives us dreams that will disrupt us. Sometimes God will give us dreams that will actually cause a disruption inside of us. Sometimes God gives us dreams that, that give us a holy discontent in us, that shakes us out of the slumber of our comfortable lives. Sometimes the dreams that God brings us are dreams designed to dislodge something in us that while might be painful in the process, puts a burden inside of us for justice and the gospel that couldn't be found in us that deep unless he had done it that way. Sometimes the dreams that he wants to bring us are not fun, are not comfortable, are not wonderful. They're the dreams of the gospel that are designed to put a holy dissatisfaction in God's people, to make them stand in a place of being uncomfortable for the gospel of Jesus. Why? Because that is the place that we so often have the ability to declare his truth, even when it feels like nothing happens. And I think one of the great things that we find in this particular story is challenging questions. Are we willing to be shaken? Think about that for a sec. Are we willing, are we open to being shaken? Are are we willing to ask for dreams that's going to shake us out of our comfort and security? Are we willing to receive dreams that is actually going to potentially bring us into suffering and persecution for the gospel. In fact, I want to, I want to say this actually more bluntly than that. I want, I want to say this. I, I think the dreams that God wants to bring Christians in Hong Kong in this important hour are dreams that are not going to be comfortable for us to hear, receive, or live out. I, I think the time for dreaming comfortable dreams for Hong Kong is over. I think the kind of dreams that God wants to bring his church right now are dreams that will dislodge us, shake us out of our slumber. Dreams like the nightmare that Pilate's wife received. Dreams that help us to understand the sin that we're carrying as the church and enabling us to confess that sin, to leave the old behind so we can walk into the new that he has. The birthing pains in us that come only when God gives us dreams that pull us out of the slumber of the comfort of our lives and puts us in a place where we will actually maybe have to get a burden that will cause us to suffer a little bit for the glory of God in our lives. I want you to know this, that all of God's dreams that he gives you are for your good, but oftentimes those dreams will invite you to suffer. 
These are the dreams that God gave Jesus. You know, Jesus's dream, God's dream for Jesus was ultimately the cross of Jesus. Can you imagine that? The cross was his dream, a place of untold sacrifice and suffering. Excruciating pain was God's dream ultimately for Jesus. This was not a dream that I think anybody would have prayed for. In fact, this is a dream that Jesus himself tried to kind of leave out, pray out, get away in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood like he was, saying to God, is there any other way? But ultimately, if this is your will, then your will be done. And and if there's ever a universal dream that has been given to every single Christian, and if you're watching this right now and you're a Christian, this is the one dream that you can take to the bank that God has given you. It's this, that you are, if you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. In other words, the dream that God has for you is the same dream that he had for his son. That God understands that if the power of the resurrection is going to be found in you, it's going to come first through the cross. It means that if we're going to follow Jesus, that there is some crucifixion that we will need to walk into. It means that if we want the joy of Easter Sunday and the power of the resurrection in us, there's going to be needing some death in us. That there's going to be needing some journey in us through the cross to that resurrection. I think the dreams that God so often wants to give us are not the dreams that we want. Oh, the dreams that will bless us, the dreams that will make us happy, the dreams that will fill our bank accounts, the dreams that will give us a platform, the dreams that will turn everybody towards us. No, so often the dreams that God gives us feel like nightmares when they come. The kind of dreams designed to shake the slumber off us and cause us to see again the beauty that there is in simply just proclaiming God's justice, no matter what the result might be. I think like Pilate's wife, are we willing through the path of suffering and trial to be truth tellers and truth speakers who through a holy dissatisfaction, a holy disruption by God are now able to pronounce and declare the countercultural message of hope to a people trapped in darkness. What a joy that is ultimately, that we get to do that, that we get to be the ones that stand in the gap, that we get to be the ones, if it's okay with this, as Paul says to the church in Corinth, that we through the gospel get to be the ones who are willing to take the dying side so that others might know the living side. That's a deep call of the gospel. Back in... um, Back at the height of the protest movement in 2019, something happened at the end of my street in Causeway Bay that was a pivotal, changing moment in my life when it came to the idea of what it is to dreaming again. I want to share this story with you. Uh, for a number of months, there was tear gas happening in Causeway Bay on a regular basis. And on this particular morning, I'd come down outside uh, the front of my apartment and looking up the road uh, that we lived on in Causeway Bay. And right at the end of the street, around the corner of the street, out of my view, a gas canister had been, a tear gas canister had been um, let off. And all the protesters that had been in that area were now flooding down my street. They were running towards me and running past me as I, as I stood there. And, and as I, I saw all these people panicking and running in this direction, I looked down the end of the street where that tear gas was coming from, and I saw one man. I saw one man standing there who wasn't running in the opposite direction. In fact, that one man was standing there facing towards where the tear gas 
was coming from. Now, at the start, I thought this man was, was kind of being brave and, and trying to do some sort of you know, uh, non-violent resistance and sort of stand in front of uh, the onslaught perhaps that was coming. But um, that actually wasn't what he was doing. In fact, this one person didn't look like at all the protesters around him. He wasn't dressed in black with, a, with the face mask that many of the frontline protesters were wearing in those days. Uh, he was just dressed normally and he was standing there. And I noticed as I looked at him, he was moving from side to side and I, and I watched him and his mouth was, was communicating to the people that were running away. And he wasn't sort of trying to get them to stop running and turn around and fight. It wasn't that at all. I could tell just by his posture that he was offering comfort to those that were fleeing, that he was trying to offer some words of, of comfort to them, even as they were in that panic state of running away. And I looked at that man and I thought, this is phenomenal. His position was not political. It was pastoral. He wasn't down the end of the street like me, just a casual observer about what was going on. At the same time, he wasn't on the front line trying to fight. He was actually putting himself in the middle space where he was willing to stand and face towards the suffering that was about to come to him. I'm sure the stinging in his eyes must have been crazy. He was willing to do that in order to offer some hope and some healing to those that were fleeing past him. And I realized in that moment that that man carried a different spirit in him that I did not carry in me. That he was perhaps more pastoral in that moment than I have been in 25 years of being a part of the Vine Church, I realized that that wasn't me. And in that place, I, I felt a dislodging of my spirit. It was not a comfortable thing at all. And here's what I heard the Holy Spirit say to me in that moment. As I'm just standing there on the street right outside my house, here's what I heard the Holy Spirit say. He said, Andrew, your city is going to need some deep healing. And like this man, it will only come through a suffering kind of love. My love, the love of the cross. And if we are to think about what it is to dream again for Hong Kong, I think we need to realize that the kind of love that we're going to have to hold in our hearts for our city is a suffering kind of love. The kind of love that will place us as God's mouthpiece at the end of the street offering comfort and hope even whilst there is stinging in our eyes, that we might be the people that are willing to put ourselves in harm's way so that the justice of the gospel would be declared, that we would be so ripped apart by the injustice that is happening around us, that we might be willing to stand in a place where even if it might be at our cost, the gospel would still be declared. I wonder whether we would be willing to ask for those kinds of dreams. I wonder whether we would be willing to be broken enough for the gospel in that kind of way. And my prayer for you as you're watching this, and I know that this is not a, a super, hey, everything's amazing motivational message, but this is the honest God's truth for you. I pray that you won't just ask for dreams that are designed to bless you. I pray also that you'd be brave enough to ask for dreams that will disrupt you.
I pray that you will ask for dreams that will shake you awake and enable you to break through and out of the place of comfort that so many of us feel. I pray that we would ask for dreams where we put the other in the limelight and not ourselves. I pray that we would ask for dreams that are designed to even enable us to be strong in the midst of the suffering that we might have to go through in order to see that dream come into a reality. I pray that you would have such a burning discomfort of the Holy Spirit in you for the injustices that are happening around you, that you will do everything you can to declare the hope that is in Christ to the healing and the hurting and the vulnerable and the marginalized in our city. And I, and I pray this. I pray I pray that the gospel would be your great joy. I pray that the suffering love of Jesus would be your great strength. And I pray that the reconciliation of the broken people in our city would become our great call. I want to say those three things again to you. I pray that the gospel would be your great joy. And I pray that the suffering sacrificial love of Jesus would be your great strength. And I pray that the reconciliation of the kingdom of God, the reconciliation of Jesus in our city at this time would be all of our great call. Church, it's time for us to dream again. But perhaps the dreams that God wants us to dream are not the warm and fuzzy, oh, bless us type dreams. Perhaps they're the dreams that are needed for Hong Kong in this hour. Dreams that will give us such a burden that we're willing to suffer for the gospel because of it. Dreams that don't always put the end game at the front point of whether we're willing to declare or not. Dreams that enable us to say, it's worth me just declaring the justice of God, even if that doesn't happen to produce the end result that I truly see and believe. Are we willing, like Pilate's wife, to send a message because of the uncomfortable burden that God has placed upon us? I, I pray that you would be so shaken for the lost in Hong Kong that you cannot stay sidelined in a time like this. I pray that you would receive the fire of Jesus. May God disrupt the vine church so that the gospel in Hong Kong could truly be felt. I want to pray for us. Can we pray together? Father, we, it's not an easy word, Lord. This is not a, a nice, sweet, inspirational thing. But Father, at the end of this long week, Lord, I believe strongly that you're speaking to your church and you're saying, come on, church. Are you willing to stand up and be counted in this time? Are we willing to dream the kind of dreams that will shake us? A few weeks ago, I sensed this word over us as the vine. And I don't just say this over the church, because, but I can say it, I think, over the vine. I sensed this word because it was, I'm saying it over myself as well. I sense this thing that there is a complete and utter power and a heart that God has right now for the lost in this city. And there is a sleeping church. And I don't say that to judge us per se, but I do say that because I think that's what's on God's spirit for us. That we cannot be asleep in this important time. Lord, I thank you that you rocked Pilate's wife 
that you rocked her awake with a dream that caused her to declare the one thing that needed to be known before the death and resurrection of Jesus, that your son was innocent and that the whole of the gospel was formed on that declaration of his innocence. Father, I pray that now. I pray, Lord, that you would place dreams in Christians across this church and across this city, dreams that would wrestle us awake at night, dreams that would not be comfortable and easy, dreams that would dislodge sin in our lives, dreams, Lord, that would place us in a position where we're willing to suffer for the gospel, dreams, Lord, that even if persecution would come, we would know that you are with us, Lord. Lord, I, I, I pray for this for me. I pray because I believe that this is the church, that you're moving the church of Hong Kong into. And God, I just ask that you would release this right now. I wanna pray for you in your home, where you are, where you're watching this right now. I wanna pray that the Holy Spirit would come in power over you. You are not nameless. You are not faceless. You have value and you have a gift. If God can use a Gentile who had no power in the court to speak his gospel, God can use every single one of us. And I want you to know that God wants to place upon you a burden that he's calling you to pick up your cross and follow him. That he wants to break your heart for this city like never before. That God wants to give you a burden for the people who are lost, anxious, afraid, fearful. And we know that so often that is ourselves. And so we bring those things to Christ so that he can fill us with his peace so that we can then be his mouthpiece. I pray you'd be so shaken that you cannot but not declare the goodness of God in the land of the living. Father, would you make us this people? Father, will we deal with our sin, Lord? I just want to say that over you, deal with your sin. And while none of us are perfect, I believe that the bride that Hong Kong needs is a bride that has let go of the sins of its past. New wine for this new wineskin. And the Holy Spirit loves you so much. Deal with your sin. Release it to Him. Let Him dislodge the stuff that's keeping you tied to comfort. Because Hong Kong is not a comfortable place to live right now. And if our primary objective is to seek comfort, we may be in temptation to hide ourselves away and to stand down that street like I was, being a distant observer to the need that's in our city. I want to pray that you would be like that man that I saw on that day, facing forwards towards the difficulty being pastoral and offering hope even at the cost of his own suffering. I pray that would be the church. Lord, that's our vision, Lord. That's my vision for the vine. That we would be that church, Lord.
I pray you do that, Lord. Whatever it takes, Lord, for our city, for people here. We pray this, Lord, in your name.